This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The city is still reeling from Sunday night's terrible mass shooting on the Danforth. And as we have seen before, Toronto is coming together to try to heal with memorials, vigils, prayers, and fundraising campaigns. Of course, the victims and their families are hardest hit, but this will affect witnesses and members of the larger community for a long time to come. I'd like to know how this is affecting you and the people in your circle. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And who are the people who are most at risk for PTSD and other ramifications of this terrible, terrible event? Right now, let's go to psychologist Dr. Sam Claridge and Karen Litovsky, a veteran grief and trauma counselor. Uh, we seem to be having these conversations too often, Dr. Claridge. It wasn't that long ago we had another one. Absolutely right. And here we go again. And it's a very sad state of affairs, for sure. And do you see, who do you see as most at risk? There were, you know, hundreds of people out on the street that night. Most at risk, first of all, I mean, the people who were hurt um, uh, and are probably in hospital, they're likely, there's a high, high risk that they're traumatized. Uh, people who observed the incident, there's a risk that some of them might be traumatized. Um, so certainly, I mean, the people who have seen the event, the people who have experienced it, say, directly are, um, are at risk. There's no question about that. And Karen, what's your take on that? Uh, I think uh, to add to that list would be people who have had other trauma in their lives uh, who may be triggered by this event and individuals who identify in one way or another with uh, the bystanders, the people who intervened. Um, I think they also uh, will be struggling, uh, especially if they have their own uh, mental health uh, concerns. And so um, we sometimes call them the worried well uh, that they're managing, but they've been impacted as well. Um, and I think it's just everyone has the potential uh, given the right set of vulnerability circumstances uh, to be significantly impacted. What about people who knew the victims, uh, you know, and or almost knew the victims? You know, I've seen interviews with teenage girls who were friends with the younger sister. I mean, there, it's kind of a pretty close connection. Anyway, are those people at risk because of the proximity? And then, you know, you keep hearing stories about, well, I was there 10 minutes before, or I was about to leave to go to the Danforth. And, and with those stories, people are pretty shaken. 
I mean, even here in our office, you know, somebody who lived there was about to go for a walk and her boyfriend said, uh, no, all hell is breaking loose. People are shaken by those things. Yeah, absolutely. People are shaken. I, I mean, it, uh, there's various degrees of sensitivity. Um, I mean, obviously, and there's various degrees of, of say, worry and anxiety. <clears throat> people who are prone to worry a bit more, people who are considered more sensitive might react more strongly. People who are less so still will react, but maybe not as strongly. I mean, it's an individual sort of phenomenon. But at the same time, I think there's a fair number of people in the city who are beginning to wonder how safe, I mean, how safe are we? And uh, what steps are the people in power going to take to try to assure that there's an increase, that there's increased safety? But um, certainly um, people watching it, people hearing about it, people close to the victims uh, are, 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 are all at risk for a certain degree of um, uh, of trauma. I mean, there's no question about that. Karen, the school, Malvern Collegiate, so the young victim, Reese Fallon, she just graduated from there. It's a horrible, horrible thing. She was about to go to university for nursing. She just graduated from Malvern, and they have opened their doors today for anyone who wants to come and get support. That seems pretty unusual. Is that an important thing to do? It is, but I was really gratified as well to hear that they were going to be offering some grief support in the fall when the kids went back to school. Because um, while there's lots of attention now and we're talking about it and resources are being offered, uh, the impact for some people will extend over a much, much longer time. And uh, to some extent, right now, we're all experiencing shock, uh, fear, anger, uh, but that sense of loss and sadness will emerge once uh, those initial uh, reactions kind of, you know, become more managed and in control, and then the reality of all the loss associated with this event. Are young people or people, teenagers who are still de- developing, are they particularly at risk, Sam? Are they at risk to be traumatized? Are um, they particularly at risk? I mean, it all depends on on the kind of people that they, uh, that they are, but certainly they are at risk, and, and some people might be more at risk than other people. I mean, I mean, if you've got a crowd of teenagers, you'd find some people at extreme risk, moderate risk, mild risk, but certainly um, they are at risk, and... Uh, and it's and, and 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 it's troubling. But if some support is offered, as counseling, if grief counseling is offered, um, if they can support one another, um, they usually get through it. Some might be tarnished for a long, long time, mm-hmm. but, but they usually get through it. And it's I think as well important sometimes to be proactive, and family and friends, schools who know. Uh, individuals and something of their life history might be able to identify individuals who might not be as closely uh, related to the uh, people who were directly impacted by the violence, but carry their own history of other traumas or losses or violent events. Is it important People want to do something about it. City Council is having a debate on what to do, maybe tightening up gun laws. A lot of people doubt that that is the answer to this problem. Is it important to feel like you're doing something? There are GoFundMe campaigns for the victims. There are vigils and memorials and all these things. Yeah, it is important. I mean, it's, I mean, action at this point is very important. 
I think the politicians, uh, the police, um, have to really take some steps to um, come up with something new and different. And they have to share that with the community. I think often what happens is there isn't enough sharing. There isn't enough exchange. There isn't enough input, say, from the public. So I think, um, uh, say, measures that will heighten safety, that will heighten security are important. I think budget cuts have always presented a problem, I think, for our city. And as a result, I think there are less police officers on the street. Would that have made any difference in this instance? It might have. There might have been a quicker response. The response was, was very quick. Yes, it was quick, and, uh, with, with, I mean, which is great. But still, we need more police on the streets. So I think it's a multifactorial service. We need to do many things at many different levels to make sure that we're doing something and action is important. If we just sit and we grieve, I mean, I mean, I mean certainly that's valuable, but we also need to take steps to come together to support one another and to make sure that our politicians are responsive as they claim that they are. Okay, uh, let's take a few calls while we have you both on the line. Let's go to Anne in Mississauga. Hello, Anne. Hi. <laughs> First of all, my condolences and my prayers are with the people who were affected by this tragedy. Thank you. And uh, also, first of all, I don't believe in guns. They're, guns are for one purpose, are to kill and hurt. So I don't know why in the world, anywhere, guns would be allowed, except for the police, for the law. And also, I don't believe, and all is blaming this person, God help, medication. Medication and that kind of, you know, the counseling he had does not take away evil and hate in a person. And I believe this person was driven by hate and was very skilled at, at what he did, because when you see the pictures, the videos on TV, he was very, very skilled at what he was doing. And uh, keep listening to the show, because we are going to take up those particular issues. Of course, we don't know, but there was a very quick statement about mental illness, and I, I don't doubt the statement, but that's not necessarily the cause, and none of the authorities have spoken to the cause, so we're going to be tackling that uh, a little bit later in the show, so, so okay. please make sure you listen to the whole hour, because there are some very interesting things there, and thanks for your call. Thank you very much also, and all the best to you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Claridge and Karen, how important is it for people to understand the motive? You know, because sometimes we don't get a definitive answer. And, and, and it may be that we need to learn to live in the presence of absence of any answer. But for me, I think the three issues that individuals struggle with in the aftermath of sudden violent death is that it was unpredictable, the question of was it preventable, and then who is accountable. And those three questions are always swirling around. And so discussion, discourse, any answers or information uh, to address that uh, loss of trust and a sense of safety because of those circumstances is really helpful. Okay, let's hear from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. My son was actually there at those locations. Oh, my goodness. On, on, no, on Saturday night, oh, okay. the night before. And I, I, I sit here and I see this on the Sunday, what happened. But I live in the community, and I, I look at what's going on in the community. A kid killed in the park across the street from my house, uh, uh, murdered. Which um, park was that? Stan Wadlow. Okay, yeah. 
Okay, and then at Cedarville and Danforth, a double homicide. It was two gangbangers. They each pulled out their guns and shot each other dead. Um, I, I, I have an office at Donlands and O'Connor. A guy, gangland style, opened the door and they blew his head off. And the 7-Eleven across the street, a, a kid stabbed. I mean, it goes on and on. This is, this is a great, good part of Toronto. How bad has Toronto gotten? It's the responsibility of the politicians. It starts at the top with Trudeau and the whole gang. They need to put these people away, lock them up, keep them away from us. It's got nothing to do with guns. It's got everything to do with bad people. Bill, let me ask you something, your son. So how did he react to the fact that he was there a day before? You know, by chance, he could have been there the day of. Has has that been bothering him? Have you checked with him? No, these are millennials. This is their new reality. This is to them. This is the, the new norm. They accept this as the way it is. I'm sitting here. I'm gobsmacked. I actually dropped him off at uh, a Pape and Danforth on Saturday night. Him and I were out. We were doing some things we had to do, and he was going out with his friends to uh, restaurants on the Danforth there. And I dropped him off. Said, you know, have a safe night. I always tell him, always be safe. It's the last thing I say to him. Came home, you know, great bunch of kids, never an issue with them. And then the next night, this. This could have been my kid. Thank you for that, Bill. I mean, I I really, uh, you know, I I can appreciate how scary that is. Thanks, Bill. One thing I want to point out, the the kid that was killed in Stan Wadlow Park, the the people that murdered him, uh, they they never released any details about them. And Janet Davis had a, a meeting down there about safety in the park. And the night they let that meeting out at 8 o'clock, there was a shooting at Pape and Danforth. So that they're telling us, I'm sitting there listening to my politicians telling me how safe my community is. And we leave there at 8 o'clock and I'm getting tweets on my phone shooting at Pape and Danforth. So oh. that's how safe this community is. You, it's we're time going to for the take that up. Politicians to do something. Okay, Bill, we're actually going to be talking to Norm Kelly after the break. Thanks for Thank your you. call. Okay, um, everybody, hang on. Uh, we are going to have to take a quick break, but we're we're going to be dealing with a few other aspects of this story before we go. Uh, Dr. Claridge and Karen, what would you like to leave us with on the possible trauma here? Well, first of all, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's becoming a bit more prominent, and it's occurring more often. Uh, Toronto as a city, I think, has changed. Um, I mean, what does that mean for, for us as, uh, as people who live here? Do we have to get used to this sort of thing? Hopefully not. Can, we get, can the politicians get closer to the community and actually take some steps that the community can get excited about to say that they're doing something different? But unfortunately, this is a new reality. And, uh, but we can't, I mean, as many people have said, I mean, we can't stop living. We've got to keep on... Um, to say uh, maintaining that resilience, which we do, and uh, hopefully, hopefully there'll be some very powerful, strong steps taken to make some significant changes to try um, and reduce. I mean, all the craziness that's going on in our community. Okay, Karen, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, there can be life after trauma and tragedy, uh, but we are all impacted, and we will change as a result of it. And I think uh, ultimately what we want to do is live safe, predictable lives uh, with a sense of 
connection to our communities. And that is my hope for everyone who has been impacted. Okay, thank you both, Dr. Sam Claridge and Karen Litovsky. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're taking a quick break. When we come back, Norm Kelly, the sixth dad, and his take on this terrible event. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. And uh, just a program note, we are continuing with other aspects of the ramification of this shooting. So callers, please stay on the line or call back because we will be getting to your calls. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. And right now we are going to Councillor Norm Kelly. He's also known as the Sixth Dad, and I think that encapsulates perfectly his role in our city. Norm, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, good to be with you. Well, what is your reaction to this horrible event? Frankly, uh, uh, I was speechless. The... uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few people of my age that was born and raised in the city. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is just so, uh, so un-Torontonian. Uh, there's nothing in the history of uh, this city, in the life of the city, the, the culture and the uh, principles that underlie our, our uh city's uh, social order this this is just you know how do you how do you cope with this how do you this is just so unexpected so i don't know it's it's norm it's uh, you hard tweeted, to describe norm you tweeted this morning i can't believe the city i love is unraveling before my eyes. Is that how you feel, that the city is unraveling? Absolutely. The Toronto that I knew, the Toronto that I love, the Toronto that I promote, uh, among other things, through the Twitter account, is it's not there anymore. What the hell's happening? And, uh, you know, City Council has been meeting, trying to tighten up gun laws. Do you think that our lawmakers are on the right track? Well, believe it or not, um, although the, and I'm using American statistics because there are so few available here in Canada, the, uh, the number of people that use guns uh, has risen 50% in the state since 1993, but gun violence and uh, gun deaths have uh, dropped uh, dramatically. Um, but that's I'd, not here. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to see Toronto statistics, Canadian statistics, uh, and it's not only the uh, the number of shootings and the number of guests, deaths deaths caused by guns that is uh, important it's the way in which these deaths occur you know a guy driving a van on the sidewalk down young street is 
I couldn't have imagined, and no one in Toronto, I think, could have imagined, uh, the shootings on the Danforth. Um, I think might be more understandable, um, given the uh, the the uh, history of of the shooter, but just the randomness of it, the the way in which it destroys our our faith in in others and in the life that we lead. It's um, boy, it's hard to get your head around things like that. Uh, Norm, I'm going to give the numbers out, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Norm Kelly, the sixth dad, and uh, uh, he talked about the unraveling of the city. Do people feel less safe? I know people are making a great show of it, going to the Danforth in big numbers to show that it is open for business. Is that part of the solution, Norm? Or what what do you think we should all do? Well, one of the things we have to do is focus uh, on guns. And I think the majority of the guns that are used in these shootings uh, are illegal. So I think that you have to invest more money in the intelligence uh, sector of both the Toronto Police, the OPP, and the RCMP. Uh, and uh, somehow you've, you've got to find out where these guns are coming from, specifically. You've got to intercept them. Uh, and when they do emerge, I think the penalties for carrying them and using them uh, should be significantly higher than they are now. Okay, Norm Kelly, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. We appreciate it. Well, this may be the number one issue in Toronto today, and it may influence the next election, and I'm very pleased that you uh, uh, connected with me. And I'm always, uh, It's always a pleasure to be uh, on your radio. Okay, thank you. Councillor Norm Kelly, the sixth dad. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, We are now going to turn to another aspect of this. And uh, as City Council is considering what steps to take on this, um, we had some information on the shooter. And that information was that the family said he had mental health issues, that they were longstanding, and that treatment didn't work. And the, the thing that really struck me in this, uh, apparently he ha- comes from an immigrant family of modest means, that this was a very, very professionally crafted statement. It appeared at exactly the right time, just as his identity was being released. And it it kind of made me scratch my head. The other thing that you had to notice from the video, he was very expert at using the gun. We heard yesterday that although he had no arrests, he had been on the radar of law enforcement because of his social media activity. So I am going to bring in lawyer Ari Goldkind now. Hi, Ari. Ari, are you there? Hello? I am, Libby. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, Ari. So what do you make of that statement that was so professional? Well, 
the statement troubles me. The self-serving nature of the statement troubles me. The constant get-out-of-jail-free card for people of, I'll use your term, a certain immigrant background who commit heinous acts. We never seem to be able in our politically correct society to ask the important questions about that particular immigrant background, which continues to cause so much trouble throughout the Western world. And we use code words. And to me, it's very, very troubling that that professionally crafted, you're absolutely right statement, that absolutely wordsmith massage statement, where the family, if the reporting today about this man's ISIS or ISIL or whatever the politically correct term du jour is, the family would have known all of that. To have it come out and to, again, tar, and I mean this literally and figuratively, to tar mentally ill people with this brush that mentally ill people are just ticking time bombs, waiting to go out and buy an illegally obtained firearm, learn how to fire it, formulate a plan of attack to walk down one of the busiest streets in Toronto, to shoot at people, to me, is such an insult to anybody who understands mental health issues and how mentally ill people do not do this without some other catalyst or belief system in their lives. And to have this conversation be just about mental health issues with that family self-serving and, in my view, extraordinarily problematic statement, I think is another representation in our politically correct society where all the politicians at City Hall this week will throw money at a problem that will solve nothing. Uh, Interesting that you mentioned that a colleague of mine came to me and when I was saying that I did not think mental illness might have been a factor there, I don't doubt that he was affected, but that is not itself a trigger for violence. And I'm sure this story, there's a lot more to it than that. And he he sent me a note thanking me because he's somebody who has struggled with certain kinds of mental illness. And he said, he said exactly what you said. It tars people who have certain struggles because, you know, very few are walking time bombs. But it seems that people want to hear that because it's an explanation they can cope with. No, I don't think that's it, Libby, with all due respect to your colleague and to you saying that. I think that's a very lovely thing to think, and I'm not knocking what you're saying. I think it's because we know, particularly in people who are in mainstream media, that the second you dare talk about a certain immigrant religion, a certain religion that is becoming much more prevalent in Toronto than it was 10, 20 years ago, you run the risk of having people call you stupid names. And even today, there are reporters from Canada's leading newspaper saying publicly, you are forbidden in our country from asking any questions about Mr. Hussein's background, his religion, his belief system. It is simply mental illness. And if you ask anything else, you are the R word. And to me, that is so intellectually dishonest and ignorant. And I'll tell you something, Libby, and I invite people to go back into the history of this city. There was a man named Richard Kashkar, and very famously, He ran over in a bulldozer about eight, nine years ago, a Toronto police officer named Ryan Russell. This was a man who was mentally ill in the middle of the night in pajamas who got onto a bulldozer. And Mr. Russell, a brave police officer, made a decision to stand in front of that bulldozer. Why do I raise such a seemingly non-linked case? Because every time we talk about mental health issues or mental illness for somebody who is Caucasian, 
or not of a certain immigrant background, people on the outside, including mainstream media, criticize the mental health defense. Oh, the lawyer's just being a lawyer. He's really evil. He should be locked up forever. He shouldn't be in a mental hospital. He shouldn't be allowed bus passes. You'll remember the guy who beheaded somebody on the Greyhound. However, when it comes to any act, and again, I'm speaking in code because we're all told we have to, There's bills in Parliament that says, don't you dare question anything. Anytime it's a person of a very specific religious cultural background, it's always mental health and mental illness. It's never anything else. And this, to me, is what drives an underground. It drives people to become more radicalized on the other side in terms of their opinions and sometimes hatred and sometimes bias, rather than saying Houston We may have a problem. Our country is changing rapidly. And the person who did this, let's circle back to Mr. Hussein, it is completely ignorant to think that people in mental institutions and people with serious mental health issues or schizophreniacs or people who are are bipolar are in any way whatsoever at risk to go out and buy a gun and go out on this kind of shooting spree. That is a false narrative, Libby, and it is shameful that the family put it out, though I understand the genius of their PR move. And it is shameful that in a country that's supposed to be liberal and supposed to understand the difference between church and state, that we simply cannot ask these questions about the actual shooter, Libby, who actually injured and killed people. We are more inclined to tap dance around this issue than to deal with the truth that left 15 or 16 people mourning the injuries or losses of their loved ones. Uh, Do you have any more information, first of all, who would have stepped in? Again, I find it hard to believe that an immigrant family of modest means would be able to come up with this on their own. And interestingly, it came straight from the CBC at the moment that the SIU uh, released it. At the moment the SIU released it, and then there was a complete circling of the wagons of the major papers in Toronto, or at least one of them, to say anybody who dares make any comment about Mr. Hussein's name, the fact that he is acknowledged of a significantly uh, growing in Canada uh, religious immigration population, that he may have looked into radicalized issues of ISIS or ISIL or very prevalent at a certain religious institution. Anybody who asks these questions, even we're speaking in code about it, I mean, I'm choosing to for an obvious reason, that those questions all suggest a diseased or biased mind rather than using the brains that we were all given when we were born to our mothers. Ari, hang on. Let's take a call from Barbara in Toronto. Hi, Barbara. Barbara, are you there? Hello? Barbara, last chance. Hello? Yes. Hello. Hello. You're Hi. on the air. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. And great program that you have, especially in light of what's gone on. Thank you. Which is a terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, I have a question um, for whoever's there, including yourself. We live in an apartment building, upper class area, and to make a very long story short, our neighbor is known to be somebody who has 
psychoses and um, schizophrenia. She has notes posted. You, you hear outbursts where she says everybody's after her. They're coming to get her. She says that, and she writes notes, keep away, and you can hear her screaming and shouting, whether they're construction workers or neighbors passing by, and she says, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to kill you. And, you know, my question is, we're all concerned. I'm very, very concerned. I understand and I feel very badly for people who have mental health issues, but what happens if this person does, for whatever reason, think that somebody is going to come after her and she decides to shoot us or take, if she doesn't have a gun, a kitchen knife or whatever, or use anything as a weapon. And we're all really fearful. Like, what do we do to protect ourselves? Um, You know what, uh, Barbara? I am not equipped to answer that question. I'm not sure if Ari is. Are you, Ari? I am. Go ahead. So this is a very interesting question that your caller asked, and it links very nicely to what I've been saying about the, the fantastically uh, misleading of our population when it comes to mental health issues. So what your caller is talking about is the very typical situation with somebody who's truly mentally ill, somebody ranting and raving, somebody who by all accounts appears to a caller and the residents, the residents of that area as, you could say, a lunatic. Here's the truth of what happens. You can call the police and sadly... And this is one time where I'm very pro-police, amongst others, but this one, where the police get a call as a first responders who aren't trained to deal with these things, aren't trained well enough to de-escalate. But that's the way that our province and our country funds mental health issues. There's no early response team unless it's the middle of the night. There's no trained nurses, trained doctors. And Libby, I should say, because I'm not just going on here, there are many young doctors and nurses and other people in the medical system that would volunteer for these. But instead, we send police with tasers, batons, and guns. So what the police can do, if they were called by this caller or somebody else, is they will come and they will speak to this woman. And if they think that she is a threat to herself or others, they will do what's called forming her, which is taking her to a mental or a hospital for For 48 hours. For 48 hours and hopefully treating her. Then, because there's no crime, they have to release her if they believe she's no longer a danger. But the reason that I go down that road, because I deal with this every day, it's part of my job, is that she is not Libby. This is important, given that we're talking about Mr. Hussein. She is not going to go out and get a gun. She is not going to walk down the Danforth and mow away 15 people. She might grab a knife and threaten somebody with it. She might hold the knife to the police. She might yell and scream and rant and go into a subway car, and we all move to the other end of the subway car. That is life in the big city. What Mr. Hussein did is a very different fish, but to your caller, all I would say is that the criminal justice system will likely fail you. It has failed the population at large. That goes back to decisions 20 years ago by the Mike Harris government and others to get rid of mental institutions to save money. But at the end of the day, if anybody thinks we're saving money by not having doctors and nurses show up rather than people with guns, then you are just deluding yourself. Okay, Barbara, thanks. Let's go to John in Toronto. Hi, John. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I believe Ari is, he hit the nail right on the head. And I would also like to add to that, that all, the finger can be pointed at the Toronto politicians here that voted to get rid of carding, that voted to get rid of that so the police 
cannot conduct investigations out on the street now. For Norm Kelly to babble on the way he did, that's just a slap in the face to the people of, 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 of Toronto. This, this fellow last that, that did this heinous crime, if he didn't produce that firearm, he could walk along the Danforth, and the way it is now, a police officer could approach him and say, good, good evening, sir, I'd like to talk with you. And this guy could say, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk to you, and just walk away. And the police couldn't conduct an investigation at all. And then after that, this fellow can go on and cause the grief that he did. If the police had brought back carding and brought back uh, the other measures that they've taken away from them, that the politicians had done that and given it back to the police, I don't believe this would have happened because the police would have had uh, been able to hang on to the situation before it happened. Um, I, I think that I think uh, that's a pretty big assumption. I mean, you you can't be everywhere all at once. The pre- police you're were there pretty quick. You know, There's no way there. That's a that's a you know a hopeful assumption maybe, but I I just don't I don't think that's a reasonable assumption that this could have well, been prevented. You can, say, you can say it's a hopeful assumption, but the thing is, if you look at the carding issue, what police can and can't do, it ties their hands in a lot of situations, and probably in this situation, it would have tied their hands. It's okay. as simple as that. Okay, John, thanks for that. I'm going to take one from uh, Mary and let Ari respond. Hi, Mary. Hi there. I just want to say that Ari sounds very classy and very articulate. And what can I do about what he talk, what he has been talking about? What can we do to help that the situation? Because he's extremely right about what he said. Ari. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and it tends to be when I explain it like this. You know, it's, it it strikes a chord in people. And you know, do I contemplate going back into politics? Sometimes I do. The problem is. As a politician, nobody says these things. So really, your caller asks a great question, which is that most people who are of sane mind, you know, this word, the R word that people get labeled if they dare ask a question about the violence in certain parts of Toronto or Mr. Hussein's background and the fact that, you know, the Toronto Sun reports that he went to Afghanistan and Pakistan and then comes back in a radicalized nature. And even if that's not true, it's still questions to be asked. The public is really behind the eight ball here because there is nobody in a leadership position. And there's no daylight between any of our three major parties here. People blame Mr. Trudeau for certain things in our country. Mr. Trudeau has been prime minister for two and a half years. These are issues that have been growing through Stephen Harper, who was a conservative. So to your caller, my sad answer, and I say this with respect and to you, want And I want to interject, yeah. Ari, that yeah. uh, uh, I heard the Premier Doug Ford, and shortly after that statement came out, and he sort of said, well, uh, you know, I, I heard that it was mental Ill- illness. But this is the fraud that's yeah. being perpetrated on the public. But because, and I'll say this, Libby, and this is fact, and anybody who disagrees, I'll debate till the cows come home. Politicians understand the demographics of our country now. And population-wise now, birth rate-wise, our country is changing massively with one specific culture and religion being at the top of that change. That's from the Pew Research Council. It's not my numbers. It's nothing that anybody can't find from an unbiased group. And when politicians know that if they dare question something, the nose that's right in front of their face, 
they will be called various labels. And there's only one or two politicians that I can think of. Maxine Bernier, he seems to have some guts. There's nobody else in Toronto. There's nobody else running for office at this current point. I mean, nominations close on Friday. Who dares ask the hard questions about who and why crimes are being committed in this city and throughout the country? So back to the caller's question, because I want to be respectful of it. People who think the way I do or your caller does, and I'm guessing thousands of your listeners, we are at wit's end. There is nothing that can be done because there is nobody in a bona fide leadership position that dares talk about this because you will then be branded or, you know, named or called out for the names that they use for groups in Europe who raise these issues and that are viewed in a spiteful way rather than, wait a minute, Canada is a country and why else do you have a country unless there's a shared set of values. To say that today, or to talk about borders, and, that, you know, for example, you call her before, they'd be all digress, talked about this being something that police could solve. This isn't a police issue. The police can't be everywhere at once. The carding issue is often misunderstood between carding and stop and frisk. This is an issue of who's here, who reflects the values of Canada. Why do we have people here walking amongst us that want to bring death and terror to our city. That's a broader question that you're not allowed to ask unless you're one of these people that believe to have a country means a shared set of values, whether it be Tim Hortons, hockey, raising your children, having 2.2 kids. These are conversations that no politician dare ask. And I think it's shameful because I think there's a significant number of the populist Libby that are very interested in that conversation and they're not even in the ballpark of racist homophobic, sexist, sexist, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, you name it. They are people with a brain. Okay, Ari, you know what? We're going to have to bring you back because people really want to uh, engage with you on the things that you're saying. Uh, Right now, I have to wrap this conversation up. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.